0: So rather than calling it a biopsychosocial, I think what we should do is start to focus on the patient. Uh, I would say from a clinician's perspective, research perspective, we would probably look at it more in a patient-centered approach, Mm -hmm. so put the patient as an expert. The only person who knows what pain is and how the outcome works and if the treatment is valuable would be the patient and we need to put them in that expert position.
1: Today we covered some pain science and how we apply this clinically. We covered pain as a lived experience and positioning the patient as an expert. We had Morten Hugh on today who is an associate professor at Aalborg University in Denmark and he's also a PhD in pain and neuroscience which makes him perfect to talk to about this topic. I'm Michael Risk and this is Physio Explained. Morton, thank you for joining us on Physio Explained. We're going to get straight into the first question. We were talking about physios being well-trained in anatomy and biomechanics, and this has potentially served us well for performance performance optimization, but not so much for pain, which is your specialty. Could you expand
0: on that for us? Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, first of all, let's just say that in physiotherapy, the basic signs which we build upon would be, as you say, an in biomechanics. And I do agree that it has served us well. And it does, to some extent, still. The problem is, if we want to understand pain and we want to use a science-based approach, so whether we call it evidence-based practice or which is use science or whatever, but if you want to do that and by that differentiate ourselves from people who are working the so-called alternative market, then we need to shift our focus because... There is nothing in the anatomy or biomechanics that can actually be used to explain pain the way we understand it today as a as a lived experience or as, a, as an experience
1: I, if the If the pendulum is is swinging from say physios who were very biomedical and maybe even before that using modalities let's say like heat packs and things, and now we 're at this place of neuroscience how, how do you think we're going as a profession? And, and the second part to that is, what do you think we would need to change if we're still a little bit too anatomy focused?
0: Well, first of all, I, need to, I think we need to understand that biomedical doesn't mean that we use biomechanics. It just means that you're looking at a stimulus response system. So if you think catastrophizing thoughts are causing pain, you're still biomedical in the sense that it's caused by a thing. So it's linear. That's what I would say. It's linear. Mm. And and the idea behind Engel's biopsychosocial model was that everything was at a molecular level, sort of the same, but it, it would constitute different, you know, um, unities. Uh, I think we have increasingly misunderstood the biopsychosocial model so much that it would be difficult to return back to it. Mm. It's almost like chronic pain has been a bad word and now it's ICD-11. It is called chronic pain, but it's so difficult because you have two words for the, you know, same word for two different things. So rather than calling it a biopsychosocial, I think what we should do is start to focus on the patient. Uh, I would say from a clinician's perspective, research perspective, we would probably look at it more in a patient-centered approach. Mm-hmm. So put the cent- a patient as an expert. Yeah. The only person who knows what pain is and how the outcome works and if the treatment is valuable would be the patient. And we need to put them in that expert position. Um, and And I think also, from a patient' perspective, we need to embrace that they have this what we call the lived experience of pain, so they live their pain, and while we understand maybe I, I usually I would you know use my fist, I would say, so the, the important finger on my fist will be my thumb, and let's say that's the nociception or the neuroscience, then even though that's really important, there are still four fingers, and in research, we're just looking at that thumb. Mm. We're just looking at one thing, that neuroscience, that's what we can study. doesn't mean that the other things doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that we don't care about them. It just means they're so difficult to study Mm. using the methods of natural sciences, which we mostly do. So we need to embrace that there are facets of that lived experience of pain, which we are not Mm. encompassing. And then we, of course, once we realize that, we need to understand how to get the best of it. And that's where we as physios should be much more engaged in communication strategies, learning strategies, uh, all of these things that actually helps us understand the patient and not just understand, but also at a later stage, engage the patient because by the end of the day, we can only advise most of our patients. We can't really change anything in them. They can do it, but we will have to, to give them confidence that, it's all right to move, for instance, or that it doesn't matter whether you move or not, but it will have a large impact if you are immobile Mm. uh, or inactive. So if your pain is the same, maybe you want to be active all the same. And this is not me telling them. That would be the expert-driven approach. I'm much more in favor of the person-centered approach where where you tell the patient, this is what I know, this is why I think it. And this is why I think that's the best idea. What do you think?
1: Um, This is our first time talking, so I'm loving exploring your thoughts. When you mentioned the patient's lived experience, something that came up was a tendency to use questionnaires or even tests as a measure. And and you were saying that's that's not appropriate. And even what you've just said there, how do you? What do you think we should be looking at? Is it just the lived experience, the patient's subjective? Um, thoughts on on how they're feeling.
0: How do we measure that? Yeah, that's, that is the thing, isn't it? So I, I would strongly... I, I, I don't discourage using questionnaires, mm. but I would definitely discourage using them as measurements of success, for instance. Mm-hmm. That would have to be a patient report in my mind. Uh, and then if, if we... So let's take pain catastrophizing uh Mike Sullivan's work and uh, brilliant work and you know having seen that in the clinic is brilliant that's a great way to explore the clinic but now that everyone talks about it like fear avoidance as well so there are these you know top notch theories out there that most people would reflect on and they would consider to be psychosocial in a manner they're neither they're, they're constructs that we use to explain what we see but my question is, how important is it what I see when I actually have the patient right there and I could ask them?
1: Mm.
0: Now, that, that, you can do, that you can do in the clinic. But if you do research, of course, you need something that is standardized and validated. So we cannot not have questionnaires, but we do need to take care of understanding, like if nociception or neuroscience was a thumb, then maybe, you know, maybe the pinky finger can be a questionnaire. But there are still very important aspects of the lived experience with pain, which we are not exploring. And and it's great that we can ask the patient in the clinic, but we haven't solved, as far as I can see, how can we engage the patients uh, in in the research? Not necessarily the patients, because there's this whole difference, you know, it's it's complicated of course, but how can we how can we embrace the fact that patients live with that pain? And it has an influence on all aspects of their life. And we cannot study their lives in Mm -hmm. not with the methods we use today. So we sort of, you know, we need to develop, we need that science. But first of all, I think we need to accept that there are limitations to how much we can actually get from the science. And that that is different. What we do in the laboratories is different from what we do in the clinic. Mm -hmm. But we should definitely be informed both ways.
1: Mm. Do you have any suggestions on how we could improve that? Because I, I believe you're a clinician and and on the research side as well. So that's correct. Is there any way that the research could be improved, or would it only, would it just become more subjective and therefore not as potent or reliable as research?
0: Well, I'd say I, I feel much more confident as a clinician than as a researcher. I was I was late introduced to academia, and I only just finished my PhD a year or so ago. So I'm, I'm no, by no means an expert in research. Mm. I just have a, you know, a window that I look into. Yeah. Um, but I would definitely say that in the clinic, there's so much we can do differently. And I think if we start doing it in the clinic, we can also enhance our results. And that should inspire researchers such as myself to then say, what is it that we do in the clinic that really works? And then use this methodology to study that. And of course, there will be lots of studies where we don't find anything, but there is a huge field that we can go and explore in the metaphor with the hand. I mean, what are the three fingers doing? If they're not just there. They are doing something, but what is it? Mm-hmm. And one way to do this, one way that has been extremely helpful and enlightening has been the whole idea about placebo and nocebo effects. So studying the neuroscience of what is considered to be non-specific effects. It is highly specific and, and a thing such as expectations is now so well-documented that I would say that is, you know, I, I wouldn't even say equally important as biomechanics. I would say, you know, tenfold as important as biomechanics if you want to understand a patient. Now, the thing is, we don't know if treating expectations, for instance, will actually have an impact on the patient. So it's great for, developing hypotheses, but the research still needs to be done. Mm. Mm.
1: Oh, there's so many questions I want to ask you about placebo, but we're going to save that for another day. We were talking well, you about... you the one who limited. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We were talking about the um, central sensitization, because you mentioned some of the theories that, that are yeah. the frameworks for what we're currently thinking. And... Could you tell us more about your thoughts on central sensitization and how it is just a theory or a framework? And are we really impacting that and, and can we measure it? So that's complicated.
0: Well, central sensitization cannot adequately be measured in humans because the way it was defined is can only be done in, you know, if you take out the neurons and study them under the microscope and, and you can't do that in a human. So you would have to have surrogate measures. Uh, there are developed, there are some models developed where it does seem that we can develop something that looks similar. But that's, you know, that's completely off the grid in relations to how it, you know, would work in the clinic. Basically, what it can do is it can inform us that, um, you can hurt, you can have secondary hypoglycemia in an area with no pathology. So that's the secondary bit. And, and there's a good chance that that might be related to strongly related to even. To central sensitization, but we can't measure that. Now, the thing is, if you take the idea that input doesn't equal output, and you extrapolate it, and you say this is why you have fibromyalgia, or this is why you have chronic pain, then I mean, it, maybe, maybe in the you know, maybe in the early two thousands that would have been a, a viable idea, but we now have so much knowledge that you cannot say that central sensitization equals the lived experience of pain. It just doesn't. It's it's, And then it gets so unhealthy. We use these methodologies, or sorry, we use these research um, ideas or findings, and then we, we modulate them or adapt them to the clinic. And while that might be a good way to develop the clinic, we also need to learn from science when it shows us that it, that simply cannot be true. For once, I mean, central sensitization is reversible. So how could it explain chronic pain? Uh, and th- there's been suggestions that you can use like a questionnaire to suggest uh, if someone was having central sensitization-related pain. But when you use that algorithm, you take out the people with neuropathies, so nerve damage. But central sensitization, as it was shown in the laboratories in animals, were only done on damaged nerves. Mm -hmm. So if anything, it would be relevant for neuropathies. And we have no clue whether it would really explain anything in the musculoskeletal world. But I think these are sort of the discussions that we need to have. But if everybody wants to understand it metaphorically or via biomechanics, these discussions are very, very difficult to have because it gets really I think, nerdy when you look at it from the outside. But it's no different from discussing how a squat should be performed if you want to optimize the, the contractions of the glute. Yeah. We just need that underlying science to actually understand what we're saying.
1: The frameworks are complex, and I guess what you're saying are still theories. It, it, if we boil it down to what we do in the practice, how can we better help people in pain, you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, patient-centred care. Yeah, um, I've been discussing this morning about motivational interviewing. What are yeah. some strategies, if, either if you want to expand on them, or do you have other strategies on how we can better help people in pain? And are they actually evidence-based at
0: the moment? I, so let me start with your last question. Mm. I think evidence-based is a it's a difficult term because if you if you try to do your best and you know the evidence, I would I would argue you are evidence based. It doesn't mean that what you do is better, or you know, couldn't be worse. We 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 don't know because it hasn't been studied. Yeah, but I would say it is evidence based if you try not to use biomechanics or anatomy to explain your pain. Mm-hmm. But that would be my take on it. Yeah. Uh, as your first question, I think the most difficult bit for most clinicians for many reasons one of them be time constraints is to shut up and listen uh but i guess you already talked to people about that if you if you talk about motivated motivational interview and interestingly if you just shut up and you acknowledge what people are saying and you try not to give them advice but listen to what they say there's a good chance that they will take more responsibility and and i think that would be one of the things that comes up again and again and again when i teach is how can we help ourselves not to end up taking responsibility for the patient um and a, a simple question i would ask my my uh, participants is can you sit down if a patient says i haven't done my exercises and say okay it doesn't mean anything it just means they haven't done it
1: yeah
0: and then you could say why not but you could also You know, if if you already know they didn't do it and they know they didn't do it and maybe they already told you they don't want to do it, then why the hell would you want to push it? Why not talk to them about consequences? Yeah, yeah. So is is that because is it too much for you? Would you rather not do them? Are you aware that if you don't do them, I have done my best and my second best will be less effective? Mm. So I think. Um, is that the kind of discussion you want to have? Or would you just want to say, Well, we'll go have another trial? But why not invite the patient in and say, Why not? Or what 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 can I do? Do you expect anything else from me? But also know that you have your knowledge and it's not similar to what the patients, they're experts on their perceptions and what they like and don't like, of course. But you are the expert on the painy bid the research, the evidence, the techniques, all of that. And we need to collaborate. We need to be confident and trust each other. But also know that I know my bit and you know yours. And I can't do anything without the patient. So if they haven't done their exercises, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that I have a new trigger off my sleeve. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, There's there's some conversations that you just get it straight away and then there's some where I, I want to think about it deeply for the next two days. And this is one of those. If you had one or two tips to wrap up as to how your management of people in pain has changed in
0: let's say the last two to three years, what what would they be? Well, being a part-time professional educator, I would say if if anyone has the need to explain someone's pain using any words that's in uh, an anatomy atlas, mm-hmm. then they probably need to expand their knowledge. And if you don't feel confident to explain it with neuroscience, although you know the neuroscience, then it's probably because the neuroscience can't explain it. And then I would listen to the patient and I would talk to them and help them create a narrative that is socially acceptable, but also precise in the minds of the patient. But more than that, it should be coherent with their history, but also with the approach they're going to do afterwards. So if I say uh, my bag is broken, but I should just keep lifting, now that's incoherent. So you need to create that narrative. Even though you know it might not be based on molecules or receptors or whatever, I couldn't care less. Uh, I, I feel quite comfortable, comfortable knowing a bit about the neuroscience and most of my patients' stories can't be explained with neuroscience, but they can be explained with the lived experience of pain, the narrative medicine sort of approach.
1: I think that's a wonderful summary. And thank you again for joining us, Morton, on Physio Explained. It's been a pleasure.